Well, hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to the College Age Movement podcast once again. And uh, this week we are in part two of our series entitled Simple. And what this is, it's a three-week series looking at some different parts of the book of Colossians. And the reason that we're calling it simple is because it, it talks about these foundational elements of what it means to follow Jesus. And Paul is in prison, and he is writing this letter to the church in Colossae. And he wants to just make sure that the church in Colossae has these foundational elements because even uh, a short time after Jesus, even when they're new and this is fresh, they're starting to drift away from some of the things that uh, Jesus ha- had called us to. And so Paul wrote this letter for that, and then 2,000 years later, it's still incredibly applicable for us. And so last week, we talked about the supremacy of God. And we, one of the points that, that we talked about is that God is not a character, but the creator, and that he's not somebody that we just seek in season. He's not somebody that we just bring up when it's convenient or when it benefits us, uh, but that God is supreme and that he is the creator of all things, and we need to, to have that understanding because if we can have that perspective that, that God is who he is as the creator of the world, the ruler of the world, the king, it changes the way that we live our lives, and it changes the way that we follow him because we have more reverence and more respect for who he is. And this week, we're going to talk about the spiritual fullness that we find in Christ. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about that. But first, I want to look at the first five verses of chapter two and pull out something that hit me pretty hard. It really uh, doesn't necessarily line up with what it means to be spiritually full uh, with Christ, but it's something that, that I feel like God wanted me to hear. And I don't think that we ever hear things for our, just our own benefit. Yes, it helps us absolutely, but it's something that, that we should share with the people around us. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 say this. It says, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. <clears throat> Excuse me. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. And the first point that I just want to talk about is this idea of contending for others. Contending for others. This idea of interceding for other people has been hitting me over and over and over recently. And it's been really, really interesting. The first time I really started to have this conversation was when I was doing my devos and I was reading the story out of 2 Samuel and this idea, or the, the story of David contending for his child. And see, what happens is that David's child gets incredibly sick, and David takes off his regular garments, and he puts himself in sackcloth, and he lays down on the ground, and he prays, and he fasts for days, contending for his child. And what that brought up in me was that I don't know that I necessarily intercede for my kids enough. I have Maddox, who's five, and Zara, who's four, and and I pray for them regularly, but I don't know that I actually intercede for them in a way that is intentional and 
in something that is passionate. It's, it seems to be something like at bedtime where it's like, I'm, I'm going to pray for him because I feel more of an obligation to do that, not, not a passion to intercede for my children. And then this idea just kept coming back up. And I think that there's a reason. I think that, that we don't intercede for the people <clears throat> in our lives very often. I think our humanity has made has made us selfish, and we like to think that we aren't, but a lot of the time we are, and that reality hits way too hard in way too many areas. Whether it would be our finances, or the time that we have, the jobs that we're pursuing, the relationships that we have, and, and quite honestly, prayer. We we pray for that which benefits us, and with the other things, we spend money and time and effort in that which benefits us. And what I love about the beginning of this set of scriptures is that Paul wants people to know that he is fighting for them day in and day out, physically and spiritually. And I think that we need to fall in line with Paul in this, and we need to be able and willing to fight for other people. When we tell people that we are going to pray for them, we need to actually pray for them. When we tell people if they need something from us, when they ask, we need to do it. I want to be really clear. God doesn't need your permission to fight for someone. He's already doing it. But I think that that the desire of God would be that we would fight alongside him, that we would fight with him. He can do all things. He is God. He is supreme. We talked about that last week. But I think that there's this inherent part of us that needs to be participating in the fight with Jesus, not just for our own lives, but for the lives of the people around us, that we need to be actual relational beings and stop getting out of our selfish ways. And some of you who are listening to this uh, have had a long distance with with Cam for a while, and some of you might be going off to college soon, and and some of you might be... um, have never been here in Billings, Montana, or ever been to Faith Chapel, and and all you've got to do is experience this through the podcast. But my prayer for those of you who aren't in Billings is that you would find healthy, fruitful, and amazing family wherever you are or wherever you're going. There are incredible Christ-centered people everywhere around the United States, and I hope that you're able to find that. But I always want you to be aware that we are contending for you here. We will always contend for you. We will always fight for you. We will always be praying for you. And some of you aren't going anywhere. Some of you are regulars at College Agent, and we're so thankful for you, and we love the relationships that we're getting to build. But sometimes you can feel alone, and sometimes you can feel like you're doing this thing all by yourself. And we want you to know, I want you to know that we are contending for you here too. It's not, it's not an if It's not a hopefully, it's an absolute truth that we are contending for you each and every day. We want to see you succeed. We want you to know the love of Jesus. We want you to to gain knowledge. We want you to have incredible, healthy relationships. And, And this isn't something where you're on your own the other six days of the week, and then on Tuesday night, we're here for you. No, we are here for you, and we are contending for you. And I want to make something else very clear, too, that if you're listening to this, and you are around a community of people, the call is that you would contend for other people as well. That family is not just one person or a pastor or a worship leader contending for the quote-unquote flock. 
the the ask that Paul is making and the example that he is setting is that we would contend for one another. We need to do it and we need to voice it because people need to know that they are not alone ever, full stop, end of story. You are not alone. And that was just something that I felt God was impressing on me over the last few months. And it was something that I I really, really wanted to communicate because I know that there are so many people out there who feel alone. They feel separated from their their friends or their family. They're they're off working somewhere or or going to college somewhere. And uh, we never want you to feel alone. So please, please, please know that we are contending for you. We are praying for you. We are interceding for you. We love you so, so much. So now I want to talk about the actual topic this idea of finding spiritual fullness or sp- spiritual fulfillment in Christ. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 say this. Say, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. So the next point is this, is it's not about receiving, it's about living. It's about living in Jesus. It's about living for Jesus. And, and our stories have a big chapter, chapter devoted to when we met Jesus. But that isn't the only chapter in your story. It's absolutely one of the most important, if not the most important chapter of our lives, is, is that moment that we met Jesus, where we surrendered our life over to him. But after that, we don't get to just skate along in monotony. We have to figure out what it means to live in Jesus and live for Jesus. And, and unfortunately, there isn't a three-step plan on how to live in Jesus that covers each one of our lives. But Paul offers up one huge tip, and that would be this, is overflow with thankfulness. Overflow with thankfulness. And I don't know if, if you're sitting there and you'd consider yourself a uh, person who just overflows with thankfulness, but there's not very many of us who would probably consider ourselves overly thankful. And that's because as a culture, we've been conditioned to focus on that which we don't have instead of what we do have. It doesn't matter if that's possessions or relationships or the job or whatever it may be, we focus on that which we do not have yet instead of focusing on all of the things that God has given us. And maybe you're sitting there saying, I don't have much, but you have something. And when we can change our perspective and we can be thankful to the things on earth that we do have, life would be so much better that we could focus on, even if it's just a couple things, focus on those things and live in that and lean into those things and be thankful to God for for what he has given us. It would give us clarity to see the things that we don't have yet that God is trying to offer us. We need to focus on the fact that what Jesus has given us is greater than anything we need now or will ever need. If you're living in, in this truth of Jesus, if you surrendered your life to Jesus, there is nothing else that you actually need. After that, it all becomes want. And none of that is to say that the desires of your heart are not important to our Creator because they absolutely are. He wants you to be happy. He wants there to be joy in your life. He wants there to be healthy relationship in your life. He wants you to have a job that you love doing. Like, Jesus wants that for you. But how are we going to appreciate that which we must work for if we can't even appreciate that which was freely given? 
Like God gave us the greatest gift ever and we aren't even thankful for it. But then we want all of these other things thinking, I will be happy if I have this, if I do this, this will create happiness. And once I have that, and once I have that happiness, then I will start overflowing with thankfulness. But the call is to be thankful now because we, if we're not thankful now, we will not be thankful later because we will always continue to think about what's next, what's bigger, what's better in our mind. And we have the greatest gift that has ever been given. We have the greatest thing that we could ever need. And we need to be thankful for that and that which we do have already, the relationships that we have, the possessions that we have, the jobs that we have. Be thankful that you have those things. Live in that truth and watch God show up time and time again to start addressing the desires of your heart. And then Paul, and then Paul tells the church to ask themselves a question in verse 8. And verse 8 says this, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So as we're in this pursuit of spiritual fullness, we have to ask ourselves a really uncomfortable question. That is, we're pursuing spiritual fullness. Is it tradition or is it Jesus? And that question should make you uncomfortable. This question makes me uncomfortable. But we have to, to know, we have to, to ask the question, like, do we do the things of our quote-unquote Christian walk because someone else told us to do them or because Jesus is actually right in the middle of them? Now, please do not hear that as traditions, that traditions are absent of Jesus. That is, that is not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that traditions, for tradition's sake, are not what we're called to do. We, on a personal level, as we, we have this intimate relationship, with Je- intimate relationship with Jesus, have to honestly ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Why am I going to church? Is it because that's the box that I have to check? Or is it because I find knowledge and fulfillment and relationship and community, like... Why am I going to church? Is it just something else that I do or is it actually something that I'm excited about? Am I having to drag myself to church or am I jacked to be there? Or why do I pray? Why do I pray before meals? Is it because I'm actually thankful for the things that God has given me of that day? Or is it because it's something that my parents taught me to do as a child and so I just do it? Why do I read my Bible? Is it because it's super easy and super enjoyable all the time? Or is it because I understand that there's more knowledge in that book than I will ever be able to attain on my own, that there's answers to all my questions, that it is God-breathed, that it is holy, that it has been dedicated to my walk with Jesus, that it has been dedicated to Jesus? Like, why do I do that? Is it just because it's something that I'm supposed to do? Or is it something that I actually want to do? Something that, that brings life and allows me to, to give life to others. And then... I always think about communion when it comes to tradition. It's probably the greatest tradition that we do in the church. This act of remembering what Jesus has done for us. There's nothing bad about communion. Not one thing. Jesus himself said, take this in remembrance of me. 
but we have to ask ourselves, and it doesn't. It's not about the denomination. It's not about how your church does Sunday services. It's not about how anybody else's church does Sunday services. What I'm asking is, when you are taking communion, are you actually thankful for what Jesus has done for you? Are you actually doing it in remembrance of Him, or is it just going through the motions? Because my challenge to you would be this, is that if you are taking communion on a weekly basis and it's just because it's what you do and it's not because there's a reverence to it, there's not something that where you want to hit your knees and be an incredibly overflowing with thankfulness because of what Jesus has done for you. Check your heart and get back to a spot where every time it's this amazing thing that we get the opportunity to do. Uh, many many traditions have been established from incredible roots, but it's on you and I to prune those trees down to the health that was intended in the first place. That doesn't mean that we trash other religions. It doesn't mean that we trash other denominations or individuals and the way that they experience Jesus. Some people, maybe including some people listening to this right now, find so much spiritual renewal in those traditions, and that is an absolutely amazing thing. And I don't think it's on us to set new rules and new regulations on how we do things. It's about finding what works for us on a personal level. We have to make sure that that in our personal walk with Jesus, we are not heading down a road of monotony or going through the motions. And we want to make it really, really clear that we all experience Jesus in different ways. This is one of the most amazing things about being uniquely and wonderfully made by the creator. That none of us experience Jesus in the exact same way. Some of us have walked away from tradition because we thought it was just a a box to be checked. And and we had to check our hearts. And some of us lean into tradition because it is something that that renews us and refills our tank every single week. And that's an absolutely amazing thing. So while it is one of the most amazing things, it's also one of the most challenging. But on a personal level, the challenge has to be inside of us, not the challenge to other people, but a challenge to us. Am I doing this because it's a tradition or because somebody told me to do it? Or am I doing it because Jesus is right smack dab in the middle of it? Because in our pursuit of spiritual fullness, we need to be pursuing Jesus not external acts. We need to be pursuing Jesus, not things that other people have told us to do. Jesus all the time in everything. And then Paul goes on in verses 9 through 14, and he says this. He says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. In Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was putting off when you were circ- was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He, Jesus, has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So the formula for spiritual fullness is this, is Christ and him crucified. 
It's not complicated. It's very simple. The formula is Jesus. The formula is Christ. The formula is what he has already done for us. And we spend so much time figuring out how to attain all of these things, all of these fulfillments in our walk with Christ when he's already did all of the hard work. And Paul is saying, Jesus did it for you. He made you an insider. He made you a VIP. Every single one of you. There isn't a rite of passage. Once you surrender your life to Jesus, you have it all. Now, that's not to say that we don't put in effort. This is a participatory relationship that we have. And we need to try to be gaining knowledge and wisdom and and all of these different things through reading scripture, through prayer, through relationship. But Paul wants to make it so clear that it's not about doing a bunch of things that, that, it get, a, you, that allow you to attain spiritual fullness. It's so frustrating to see the way that we live our lives and we try to check so many boxes and we try to do so many things and we try to add it all up and say, okay, am I there? Have I been spiritually fulfilled yet? And Paul is communicating a message that, that we all need to hear and that is that Jesus already fulfilled you, that you are already full of the Spirit of God because of what he has done for you, not because of anything that you will ever do. And then Paul says, if you want a tradition to hold on to, if you want something external, look at baptism. And we can spend a whole sermon, a whole sermon series probably on baptism, but I just want to make this one point. What's really interesting about this is that the people of biblical times were so used to having their faith be external. Everything that they did, the forgiveness of sins was was an external act of sacrifice. The prayer was so external. Everything about their walk with God was external, that people could see it, they could see it, and we could experience each other's faith. But then Jesus came and Jesus made a personal faith available internally. It wasn't about grand gestures anymore. It wasn't about a priest going into the Holy of Holies. What it was was a personal, internal, incredible relationship because of what he did on the cross. And I love that that baptism kind of breaks the mold of tradition. Jesus did it, and because he did it, we should follow in step with that. But what I love about baptism is that it is an outward expression, an external expression of what is happening internally. And it is so vitally important because it shows others that we are not ashamed of our faith in Christ. And our relationship with Jesus isn't just for us, is it? Our relationship with Jesus isn't meant to be held internally. What Jesus did is he made an external relationship available internally and intimately. But that wasn't so that we could hold on to it for ourselves. It was so that we could have intimate, internal, personal relationship that we then share with the people around us. And what I love about baptism is that it does that in this amazing, beautiful, significant way. That that we identify with Christ in his death, in his burial, and then in his resurrection. And we are telling the watching world that we are so excited to follow Jesus with every part of our lives. 
And that as other people see somebody take that step into making the decision of baptism, they want to do that too. And I don't know how many people I've got to talk with over the course of my career as a pastor. It's been a short career, but one of the incredible things that I get to do is baptize people. And how many times people say, I saw this person do it. And I saw them passionate about their faith in Jesus. And it led me to want to do it too. And I love that about baptism. And the next point is this, is that we are no longer slaves to our sin. Once again, it's not because of anything that we have done, but because of him, because of him, because of him. I love the phrase in the scripture. It says that he took our indebtedness and he nailed it to the cross. We are no longer in debt to this world. We are no longer in debt to our sin. If we are indebted to anyone, it is to Jesus. And because of what he has done for us, we have surrendered our lives to him, committing to follow him with reckless abandon. I want to end this week just by reading the last verse of this specific passage. It's verse 15. It says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, having disarmed the powers and authorities, have, having disarmed sin and regret, guilt, having disarmed those things, he then made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I don't know where you're at today, but I want you to know that you are spiritually fulfilled in Jesus that he has done that. And that any sin, any guilt, anything that you're feeling has been nailed to a cross and that Jesus made a public spectacle of it. Thank you so much for joining the College Age Movement Podcast this week. We will be back next week with part three.